Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. Happy you are all here with me today on this episode of the podcast. I have one of our CTS coaches and Patrick McGlade, and it's all about this bridge from physical therapy and rehabilitation and back into running, which is a topic that I've talked about a lot on this podcast. And we just happen to have one of the coaches in our stable that works in a physical therapy clinic. Patrick is a physical therapy assistant at Next Level Sports Performance in Golden, Colorado, where he works with all different types of people and athletes from coming out of a a surgical rehabilitation setting to high performance setting. And he sees athletes across all of those spectrums. And in addition to that, he is is also a coach with us. So he happens to have a extremely unique perspective on this whole transition of healthy runner to injured athlete, going into a rehabilitative uh, setting and then coming back out again. And so we have this wide ranging conversation on everything related to that, including one of his specialties, which is starting to pop up more and more in the literature and more and more in practice. And this is using this technique of blood flow restriction in a rehabilitative setting. I really enjoyed this conversation. Patrick is a great guy. He's an avid ultra runner. He's a, and he's just a good person all around with an incredible skill set. So here we go. I'm going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation with Patrick McGlade. Well, thanks for joining. I appreciate it. I know it's hard to like carve out time in the day when you're bouncing from patient to patient to patient as we were talking about earlier. But like I said, yeah. I appreciate the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Um, what what I want to try to convey to the listeners a little bit is really through your experience and your eyes from a very practical standpoint, kind of what you do and then use that what you do as the basis of the learning lessons for the listeners out there that don't get to interact with a coach or in a clinic or with physical therapists or people in orthopedic or orthopedic setting on a day-to-day basis. Because I've said this on, you know, numerous, numerous podcasts for years and years and years, and also to my athletes. And also we've talked about this uh, in a coaching group. We're kind of collectively the whole running community collectively really terrible at preventing and staying out of an injury cycle. And despite all of the technology and all the science and all the good folks that try to keep us on the right side of the line, we kind of suck at it if, we, if we're looking at it through an oddest lens. And so I think the more people that I can bring to the forefront to like help navigate this, I think the better off we will be. It's never going to be perfect, but the better off we'll be. So to start out with, you have this dual rule role in the clinic and as a coach and the listeners will be familiar with a lot of the coaching side of it because I've had coaches on the podcast before. So why don't you start out with kind of going through like in the clinic, how, what that setup looks like and what your roles are. Sure. Sure. So, um, to start, I work in outpatient orthopedic clinic that specializes in, in sports medicine. So we see on the day-to-day, we see a wide variety of patients from high-level athletes to older folks that are getting over their their total knees or total hips um, and basically everything in between. Um, And so on the day-to-day, it gives us a good good view of, of people as a whole and the types of things they're dealing with, um, and how it can, how it can relate to what they want to get back to. And so we do traditional physical therapy, um, but we also have sports performance in the clinic. And, um, I don't know if I mentioned this already, but I work at next level sports performance in golden Colorado. And so we're in a community with pretty high, level athletes and even our, our weekend warriors are, are people looking to get back to a pretty high level of sport, whatever it is. Um, and 
So the sports performance side of things helps bridge that gap between traditional physical therapy and making a full return to everything they want to do safely. We're, we're starting to see more and more clinics that are like this, that are trying to have a lot of different types of services underneath the same umbrella in an effort to coordinate the whole chain of events. And I remember when I was interviewing you kind of coming on board, we were kind of describing some of the, some of the challenges, but also opportunities that that system kind of has where, you know, traditionally when somebody gets post-surgical they get into, you know, post-op types of physical therapy, there's a gap between that post-op physical therapy and then what we would call return to play. And that gap was kind of left up to the athlete or the individual to kind of figure out. And it was always this weird area where coaches would try to come in and fill the gap and then some physical therapists that would come in and fill the gap. But we're starting to see more and more of these outfits that start to offer this more of a continuum of the athlete from having a surgery or having a traumatic injury, having physical therapy, and then kind of getting back to play. And then you guys have the additional benefit uh, of having a sports performance lab, which is kind of even an, extent, an extension of that. In, in your experience, how, like, what do you think about that continuum, right? Because it's not, it, I would say that's not common in every practice. And what do you think that some of the advantages of a clinic like that can kind of offer in terms of have of being able to provide services to the same athlete and sometimes underneath different providers from one point to the other? Yeah, that's a good question. I think because you're right, we are seeing more of these clinics pop up where they're, they're offering everything under one roof. And I think some of that is a realization that, that we're treating the entire person. And while we might look at, at their ailment from a physical therapy side of things, there's more to it than that. And so you're seeing some of these, some of these clinics pop up that offer nutrition services and, you know, the, the blanket wellness term (laughs) that you might see. Um, And so it, it is going to tap into a much wider array of things but it's all relative or, or it's all necessary for treating the, the, the whole person um, as opposed to just saying, well, this one thing or this one discipline is going to fix you and, um, and just stick into that and, and, and just being glued to that one, one piece of it. But to that, to your point or to, uh, to the question on, on the gap of, of traditional, uh, physical therapy and a full return. Um, that was one of the reasons that I got into coaching in the first place. Um, because I saw that gap of, of, you know, we get to this point in, in the rehab process and there, they might pass a strength test and might be cleared to, to do some, to start doing some running and, you know, a traditional post-op running program might consist of, 30 seconds on 30 seconds off for five minutes. And that might build over the course of 12 or 16 weeks, depending on the, the individual to the point where they're running 15 minutes at a time. It's like, well, that's nice, but there's a big difference between running 15 minutes at a time and running even a marathon, right. uh, never mind some of the longer distances. And so um, that's when I started diving into to some of the research on, what, you know, how do we actually safely bridge that gap? Where do we go from here? Um, and so one of the things that I did was uh, create a running protocol for that next step. Then I realized it was basically essentially just a couch to 5k program. So I threw that out <laughs> <laughs> and then realized that it was much more individualized than that yeah, and it needed to be. Yeah. Um, so that's what, that's kind of how that all started. I think so your earlier dialogue with all the services under one roof, this has always been one of my issues with physical therapy as a practice. And that's not to say that I have an issue with physical therapists. I have great friends that are physical therapists. I lean on physical therapists a lot. But a lot of times the, that, that those practitioners get tunnel vision, not all of them, but a lot of them, they kind of get tunnel vision and they see a runner, especially a runner that comes into their practice and like, oh, well, 
you have tight hamstrings or weak weak glutes, right? It's kind of a catch-all for all runners. And they start providing these tried and true kind of blanket solutions when, as you mentioned, there's usually more things going on. Not always, but usually more things going on that need to be addressed. But if if what you have underneath your roof is physical therapy, everything looks like a nail, right? If all you have is a hammer, everything else looks like a nail. And by having all of these other different disciplines underneath kind of the same roof, it offers a, like a broader array. Now, sometimes that's not practical, right? You can't have 20 cooks in the kitchen, but right. I think that there's a, I think that there's a, a, a kind of a blend there. Um, so the color commentary on that aside, let's kind of get like brass down to brass tacks with, with runners, right? The audience that we're talking about are, are ultra marathon runners in which I know you guys work with a lot there because we're pretty notorious for hurting ourselves in all manners, overuse injuries, traumatic injuries due to a fall and things like that. Why don't you run us through kind of the more common scenarios that you see and then how runners can go about addressing those if they're trying to address them uh, kind of on their own accord? Sure. So without, you know, getting too specific because, you know, I kind of feel like I have to put the caveat out there. Everybody's different. Everybody's injury is different. You know, if you're truly injured, go see a PT, go see your practitioner, whoever you need to see in your, your state. Um, cause every state is a little different, you know, um, Colorado's lucky we were direct access. So you can just walk into a PT clinic and say, I want to see a physical therapist. Um, but in other states, you have to go to a primary care first and get a referral. So, um, do your diligence on that one and, uh, and go see your practitioner if you're truly injured. That being said, um, we do see a lot of runners and we see a higher proportion of trail runners just because of our location. Um, and I think one of the things that we see probably the most of is our runners that have gone to other clinics or runners that have tried to fix themselves with the pretty standard exercises, the bridges, the clams, the, the squats, the lunges, you know, basically all the exercises that you're going to find in, you know, any running magazine out there and they do them ad nauseum. And if somebody tells them to do 20, they do 50 because more is obviously (laughs) better. And, um, and then they don't get better. And, and I think there's, there's a big disconnect between what, someone might tell them to do and how they're doing it. Um, so yes, are clams a, a good exercise? Sure. For the right person, they can help strengthen the muscle group and make you better at doing clams. But the, the thing that we see more of is that they might come in and have strength in a certain area, but they don't know how to use it. And so we will typically uh, walk them through how to use that motion in essentially what's called a closed kinetic chain movement or, or standing on one leg. If you're, if you're talking about the glutes, you know, you can do uh, clams all day, but it's, it's not going to translate to running strength all that well if you don't stand on one leg and try to do things while you're, while you're stabilizing that area. So, um, you know, I'd love to give out, you know, a, a handful of perfect exercises, but, um, you know, if you're working with a physical therapist in your area, you can just start the conversation with how does this relate to running? How can I make this, uh, more applicable or how, what's the next step in this exercise? And they should be able to tell you, um, yeah, we're going to do this. And then we, we progress to this and then we, start doing things like airplanes and RDLs and, and, you know, working on actual exercises that are going to help stabilize that, that area, uh, within the action of running. I feel like I was kind of trapping you with that answer because I knew you were going to, I knew you were going to come up. I mean, we've had these conversations before in our coaching, in our coaching group, right? There's no magic answer. There's no magic, uh, exercise that will prevent injury. That's what everybody wants. And all the, you know, sexy titles in the magazines are five exercises to keep you injury free. All that is total nonsense. And I think that you starting out with, here's what we see. We see people take these five magic exercises 
and still not get better. And here's why they're not getting better. It's because they're not actually applying it to the motion. I think that that's the learning lesson there because all too often, you know, runners will, they want to DIY it. You know, there's nothing, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's how you want to kind of figure things out. Yes. You're left in more capable hands. If you go to a qualified physical therapist, but if you're trying to DIY it, just like you're trying to DIY the electrical, you know, outlets in your house or your plumbing or whatever, you can't just work on the drain. You have to work on the whole drainage system. You have to work on the whole electrical system. And so physical therapy or like fixing injuries is kind of the same way. You can't just do clamshells and expect yeah. them to translate in any, you know, we're picking on clamshells a lot now. We have to find, <laughs> find another exercise. Monster band walks. That's my other favorite one. Yeah, that's my other yeah. favorite one. You can't yeah. just do these single exercises and expect them in most cases, almost all cases, to have an appreciable effect for the end user over long periods of time. Most of the times they'll right. have a little bit of a short effect and then you have to be able to translate that in order to have a long-term effect. Absolutely. And I think, you know, if we're, if we're talking about, you know, broad statements or, or big general themes that we can apply to, to almost everybody, you know, most of the time within the course of rehab, I have the conversation with, with anybody. It doesn't even matter if they're a runner, but I mean, almost every endurance athlete, we have the conversation, be an athlete first, be, be strong, be mobile, be healthy, take your entire body, your, the, the mental side of everything, get everything in order. And all of that is part of training. And then your chosen sport is running or endurance biking or swimming or soccer or whatever, but be an athlete first and, and really, understand where your weaknesses are. And a lot of times physical therapy can help with that, but there are other disciplines that can help with that too. And, um, you know, once you get those in order, then you, you bring those strengths to your chosen sport. And, um, and those are the things that, that when we can really shift that mindset a little bit to, um, to, to get away from just thinking of training as, solely running and you're incorporating strength exercises, you're incorporating some mobility, some foam rolling, you know, all of those, those things that make you a good athlete. Um, that's where we see people really take off and, and do well. So let's peel the curtain back on that process a little bit. So you have an athlete that sure. comes in and we can come up with any sort of generic injury, right? You guys have an sure. intake process to try to determine what those strengths and weaknesses are on a physical level mm -hmm. and kind of on other levels. Take us through like what that actually looks like, because you and I have talked about it and I've always found it like way more comprehensive than most people will think because most people are like, oh, well, let's just test for hamstring strength or let's just test for glute strength or like whatever yep. these stereotypical weaknesses are with runners. Peel yep. the curtain back out on that process a little bit, because I think it's important for the athletes to understand how compre how comprehensive that actually needs to be. Sure. So to be clear, I'm a PTA, so I don't do initial evals. So the first thing they're going to do is let's say this is one of my athletes that are injured and they're in the area. I can bring them into the clinic. So the first thing they're going to do is they're going to see a DPT, a uh, doctor of physical therapy, and we're going to do an entire eval. And the eval is going to really break down their entire body. They're gonna, let's say they come in with knee pain. They're going to look at ankle mobility. They're going to look at all the muscles surrounding the knee, all the mus muscles surrounding the ankle, all the muscles surrounding the hip. They're going to look at core strength. And then they're going to put them through some functional movements and see how they move. And functional movements being what? Being things like squats, walking, um, depending on how injured they are, um, I will watch them run um, on their next appointment. Um, but we're going to go through all those things. And then we take all of those tests into account with the, um, you know, with their injury in mind and where their pain is and what types of things they're having more pain with or less pain with, what makes it feel better, what makes it feel worse. Um, you know, all the kind of standard questions that you'd expect from a doctor. So that, and, and all of our, um, all of our appointments are a full hour. So they spend an entire hour going over what this person looks like as a whole. And then when they set up subsequent appointments, 
typically, um, then I step in. And like I said before, depending on how injured they are, I might watch them run. And if it's just, you know, for example, if they're just having pain after mile 10, okay, well then we start to dive a little bit deeper into, okay, what's your training like? What kind of surfaces are you running in? What kind of shoes you're running in? What are you training? I mean, what are you training for? Uh, you know, how soon is this race? Because you know that the people aren't coming in with six months to go to the race. <laughs> it's always six days before <laughs> always, the race. <laughs> yeah, race in 10 days. How do we do this? Exactly. All right. Awesome. Yeah. Game plan. Um, so then we just take a much deeper dive into what they're looking, what, what their goals are and how we can take their current status and bridge the gap uh, between that and their goals. And then, so usually between the, the initial eval and, you know, because I usually step in in that second appointment and that's where you get a little bit deeper into uh, running analysis or, um, you know, based on, they might've been given a couple of exercises at the first appointment. Um, that's when we can really start to paint a good picture of, of, what this rehab process is going to look like, how fast do we think this is going to go? Um, and you know, if we think it's safe for them to do the race, that's so the, you just mentioned one really interesting point, how fast the process is going to go because every runner, if those of you that are not watching the YouTube version, Patrick's got a shit eating grin on his face right now. Cause he knows where I'm going with this. Every runner that has ever been injured always wants to know when can I start training again? Right. And is it two days? Is it two hours? Is it two weeks? Is it two, is it two months? And physical therapists and physical therapy clinics are typically adverse to try to answer that because you're looking into this really hazy crystal ball and you never really, you know, you never really kind of like know the answer. So, no. but yet the, the desire to know that still exists either because there's a race on the forefront or we just want to know when we can start to enjoy our physical outlet anymore. I'm not going to ask you how long injuries take, but I, I want I want you to kind of explain the process of how you navigate that time frame with an athlete, knowing that you're not going to be able to get as precise of an answer as they probably want. Right. So. The majority of this question, I, I think, comes down to patient education and educating the patient on tissue healing timeframes, figuring out what's, what's actually wrong, you know, because if we're dealing with, with a bone injury, that's way different than, than dealing with a, a minor muscle strain. So we're usually not very quick on the, well, let's pull the plug, let's stop all running. Let's take a bigger look at this. Mm. What's actually happening? What's that's my um, dog. She makes an appearance every <laughs> once in a while on this podcast. I think somebody just delivered something to my front door. Continue, continue, Patrick. Yes. The users will be used to this. By sure. now. <laughs> um, so taking a look at, at the, at the big picture, you know, what kind of time frame are we dealing with? Is the race next week or is the race in, in three months and we have a little bit more time? Um, and then trying to get to the source of the issue. If we can dive into their training and I can look at their training logs and say, well, I mean, looking at what we're doing here, this looks generally unsafe, but it also depends on, on what is working well for the patient. You know, I've had patients that for whatever reason, they couldn't run at an easy pace without pain, but they could do a track workout. Right. And, so it's, it's, it's more planned to, okay, what can we do during this, this time safely? And how can we keep you moving? It's not necessarily, let's just shut everything down blanket statement because that's not always the answer. Um, so most of the time I would say it comes down to just educating the patient on what we're actually dealing with. Are we dealing with a, a major issue here? Are we dealing with a little bit of soft tissue? Um, problem? Are we dealing with just kind of a, a muscle imbalance that, you know, certain muscles just aren't working the way they need to. And, you know, we can run up to a certain point while we're getting those muscles online, but, uh, but we just won't progress past a certain point. Um, and so it's, it is variable for everybody. I, I think that the part that you mentioned where you're trying to keep them moving 
is an extremely important aspect for the listeners to take away because, you know, we'd like to have these like forks in the road, these really hard forks in the road. Should I run or should I not? Is the pain getting worse? Then I should not run. Is the pain getting better? Then I can run more. And the reality is, is you have more tools at your disposal, right? Sometimes it's speed, as you just mentioned. That's the tool. Sometimes they feel great running fast. Sometimes they feel great running slow. Can you bike? Can you swim? Can you do all these other things? And this notion that you don't necessarily have to shut everything down. Sometimes you do, but you don't necessarily have to shut everything down for every single injury in a better rehabilitation path usually is find what can work because that actually assists the rehabilitation process. I think it's a good learning process for every single athlete because a lot of times it's like running or nothing, right? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Especially for runners. It's like yeah. run, 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 you know, run, run, run or nothing. Um, I want to pivot to another area that you mentioned, and this is looking at people's running mechanics. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know this is something that, uh, that as well that you do in clinic and something that in the running community, we've kind of gotten a little bit over obsessed with, um, in terms of trying to create like perfect form. What, what are the key things that you're looking for when you put somebody up on a treadmill and you're kind of looking how they run? What, what are the, for you as a practitioner that is trying to navigate runners coming from injury or trying to prevent injury in the first place? What are like the key hit points as you're taking them through that process? So to be fair, most of the, actually all the people that I'm looking at running are injured because they're in the clinic. I don't, (laughs) that's, that's, that's the fact of the matter. So I'm not having healthy people walk in and say, my running is going great. I'm training fantastically. I want you to watch me run and tell me how to get better. Like, it just, it doesn't happen. Um, Probably should though. Like how, <laughs> like where am I going to break down? Right. Yeah. Anyway, let's sit in well, the conversation. And, and to that point, I, I think it should like yeah. every other sport practices skills yeah. and running is a skill running is it's two and a half times your body weight landing on a single leg and then pushing off of it as hard as you can. If, if you break it down that easy and so it is a skill that I think should be practiced. Um, so to start, yeah, every, every runner that I watch run is injured, um, or has a history of injuries or has recurring injuries or, or has something that we're, we're trying to, trying to change now, whether or not we change that with a gait pattern change, that's individual because some people, um, some people, the reason for injury is, are, are training problems. They're, um, they're not necessarily gait issues. Like load problems. Is that oh, yeah. how you're describing yeah. that? Like just yeah, training absolutely. load. I'm increasing my mileage training. too much. I'm increasing my speed too much. Something like that. Yep. Yep. They're, uh, they're, they're training mistakes. Um, so right off the bat, I go into a gait analysis with the bias that I want to change the minimum I feel that I have to, to safely get this person to alleviate future injuries. Um, I, I'm not typically into completely shifting and overhauling someone's gait um, because the research has shown that most of the time, People are going to find the path of least resistance. The body's going to compensate pretty well. And if we're looking, if, if ultra marathon participation numbers are any indication of it, people compensate really well and they can, <laughs> <laughs> they can do well for a long period of time on less than, uh, less than stellar mechanics. Uh, uh, and if you look at the last mile of a hundred miler, that's a pretty good indication of that. Um, because <laughs> gate mechanics there look Let's do a gate mechanic analysis <laughs> up on the boulevard at the Leadville Trail 100 this year. Uh, and uh, Basically, yeah. I think we'd, we'd have uh, Jim Walmsley and Jared Hazen passing, and that's about it. Yeah, there you go. Everybody yeah. else, total fail. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, I think I, I go into gate analysis much like, uh, much like we treat uh, coaching. You know, we're looking for the minimum effective dose to – to change so that they can get what they need out of their, their running gait. And so even with that, you know, let's say someone comes in and it's, it's just a, a horrible looking gait. They don't move very well athletically. 
It's, you know, they, they don't have control of their body. We're going to be looking to make micro changes at a time. So because even for I, the worst, hold on, even for what you're saying, I want to drive home this point. Yep. Even for the people that look the worst from a mechanic standpoint, you're still saying that you're trying to change as little as possible. At a time. There you go. At, at a time. There yeah. you go. Yeah. Uh, because if I tell someone to pick their knees up more and drive with their hip more and land in this position and swing their arms more and do all these things, it, it running happens too quickly for them to absorb it, mm-hmm. think about it and, and, and do it all at once. So, and I think sometimes people get into trouble with that on their own because, you know, I'll have somebody come in and they're like, well, you know, I, I read this article and so now I'm trying to land more on my forefoot or now I'm trying to land more here or land more there. And it's like, well, first off, you're, you're looking at your feet the entire time to try to make sure that you're doing that. And now you've completely changed what your upper body is doing on the gate front. So you've, you've wrecked your posture. You've, you've completely shifted the way your weight is distributed throughout the gate cycle, all because you're focused on one tiny thing <laughs> that you read in, in some article about where your foot should land uh, what, what part of your foot you should land on. So I, I think, you know, and, and you see this all the time in, in training as well with your athletes, people get fixated on one tiny aspect of the gait cycle. And it's, it's not one thing. It doesn't actually matter all that much where you strike on your foot. It has much more to do with where your foot is in or where where that contact is in relation to your center of mass at initial income at initial contact. So, um, so when we're doing it, let's go back to the, the, the horrific gate. I'm looking to make tiny changes at a time, just have them think about one thing and let's just think about one thing and then feel it. And then I watch them and then, okay, so they fixed that one thing. They fixed it without looking, you know, they're fixing yeah. it while they're looking up straight, standing tall, their posture is good. And then we can move on to the next thing. Um, so it's, you know, there've been very few people that I've, that I've actually looked at and said, I, I hate to say it, but we need to start from scratch. <laughs> we, need to, <laughs> we need to go back to the basics and, and start with a skips, you know? Um, but I think that's telling the fact that out of all the patients that you've seen, all the runners that you've seen, very few have this completely new rebuild. And more often than not, it's really small things. As you're going through that dialogue, it's almost like training, right? Yeah, Where we ladder one thing up at a time and usually ladder down another thing. It's the typical thing that most people will that will resonate with most people is volume and intensity. Mm-hmm. As you bring volume up, intensity needs to go down. And as you bring your intensity up, you want to do super hard intervals, you have to bring your volume down. And then once those normalize, you can ladder it up and down and up and down and kind of teeter-totter them. The classic coaching mistake, as we talk about a lot in our group, is increasing volume and increasing intensity and increasing the amount of intensity all at the same time. That's kind of a uh, recipe for disaster. And your dialogue about the foot strike, I think, is the same question where should my foot strike? Should it be heel strike? Should forefoot strike? Should I run on my toes? Which nobody can run on their toes except for ballerinas, right? We shouldn't realize that. I feel it's the same, that's in the same vein of what my longest long run should be. It's the the same vein. (laughs) It's like that doesn't have any relevancy right now. We need to think about the whole picture, not just this one singular aspect. Right, right. But, you know, historically like books and I, I hate to pick on born to run it was a great book i you I can pick up born to run nobody's i enjoy i enjoyed the story <laughs> myself like and of course I, I was went out and got a pair of five fingers it was 2010 oh, yeah. <laughs> but you know that was a great that's a great example of like one thing that that they picked one piece right. of advice one piece of equipment that and and this one this, this one target audience that was utilizing that and it completely shifted the the thinking on it. Um, and there's just, there's much more to it. 100%. It's okay to yeah. pick up. I think now that we look <laughs> back on it, like everything has unfolded exactly the way that I said it would unfold during the middle of the barefoot mania is everybody gets caught up in it. It's the new thing. More books have been written about it. It's the 
panacea for all of these running injuries. And all it is is make things worse, <laughs> to be honest with you, at the end of the day. Like injury rates went up. Vibram got sued. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you see any well, of that in your clinic? Like people who transitioned to like barefoot or five fingers? Because I've heard this from a number of physical therapists of the like the aftermath of all of that. You know, I wasn't um... – I was still working in running stores at the time. I wasn't doing this. You were um, selling so the I, five fingers. Come on, was, man. <laughs> was, we didn't sell five fingers. <laughs> but but I, I will say, though, it got the conversation started in the right direction. Okay. I will do that because I, I there is a lot to, um, you know, moving naturally and, and using your body the way it's it's meant to be used and and strengthening your feet. Uh, there, there is something to that. Um, whether it has to be swung as far as that pendulum, (laughs) obviously it's, you know, not the case. Um, but there is something to it. And, and, you know, every now and then I still have somebody come in with, with five fingers and they're like, Oh, these are the only shoes I can run in. It's like, all right, man, (laughs) we'll go with it. Yeah. Well then why are we seeing you here? Okay. I want to pivot to kind of another more coaching related topic. So I I came to know you as you started with a coach for CTS and you obviously you had this PTA background, but also a coaching background before you, you know, before you started working with us. And I always thought that that was really interesting because coaching is ultimately an interdisciplinary profession. We try to be jacks of all trades. And at the same time, we are also masters of none, right? We have to play in the physical therapy world. We have to play in sports psych. We have to play in sports nutrition and try to harmonize all of these different elements, realizing that we're not as good as the DPTs that you get to work with on that side. We're not as good as the registered dietitians that we all get to work with. But the more broad of a skill set you can have in any of those areas, the better you can serve your 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 athletes at the end of the day. So, how have have you been? How do you think that that is synergistic within the athletes that you work with? Not only that you see in the clinic, but also the ones that you're now working with remotely. Right? You don't have the opportunity to to see them in person. You might be able to do it digitally but you still can't right. do it in, in the, in the kind of same way. How do you think that those things actually transfer over? So I think it's transferred in a couple ways. And I think a lot of it has to do with the, the team atmosphere of both, both jobs. So in the clinic, we, we utilize a team treat so that we get more hands on the patient. We get more eyes, we get more, um, more levels of experience, more um, backgrounds and, and biases essentially on it. And it works out really well. And I think CTS is, is kind of the same way. And it's honestly the reason that I stopped doing my own coaching thing and came to CTS because I knew there was this, this team of coaches that, you know, we've got that call every Wednesday and it's, it usually divulges at some point into just kind of a round table discussion on something. And it, it's, it's really good because it just gets that dialogue going. And so they, they cross over pretty consistently um, because being in the clinic, I'm constantly reminded of what's happening anatomically at the muscle level. Coaching wise, I'm constantly reminded of what's happening on the cellular level. And I wouldn't necessarily get that both way, you know, if I was just doing one or the other. So, you know, obviously I don't have to talk about the, the cellular level with my patients, but it is a good reminder to, to and, and I use this on both fronts, to zoom out, okay, what am I dealing with with this athlete or what am I doing, dealing with with this patient? Zoom in, what's the problem? What's the workout? What are we dealing with today? And then zoom back out and how does that problem relate to the bigger issue? How is this injury going to affect them long-term? How is this injury going to affect their, their goal? Whether their goal is to run Leadville or whether the goal is to, to be able to play outside with their kid, it doesn't really matter because if you take that zoom out, okay, whole big picture, zoom in, and then zoom back out, and both of them, I'm, I'm using both in both settings, or I'm using the same thing in both settings, it can really help to to better manage what I'm dealing with and avoid that tunnel vision of, okay, well, how's this workout going? What am I doing this week with this person? You know, 
What's the longest pain. long run? What's, what's the longest <laughs> long run? Your favorite question. You know, um, it really helps to to be able to convey that and and then you know then teach the the athlete or the patient. This is what I'm looking for. This is why we're doing this, um, and so it helps them to understand too. The the zoom in zoom out as you know, but just kind of for the listeners' reference, uh, I think that that's one of the if not the most important coaching skill that you can have. If you can zoom in on the level of the workout, athlete does the workout, you get your training peaks notification, you look at it, okay, what are all the hero metrics? Okay, we're going to go into the workout. What's the normalized graded pace? What's the heart rate? What's the elevation gain loss and things like that? Zoom into that level and then zoom out to where does this workout fit in the picture of everything and does it still make sense? Do I need to change things going forward or, or can I keep them the same? And then zoom back in to the level of a week or a few weeks. Does the architecture of these few weeks remain the same? That process, one, it sounds super easy when I describe it, but it's only because I've done it 10,000 times. When you're actually in the thick of it and you're getting the workout notifications, it's all too easy to ask, what's my long run going to be next week? (laughs) (laughs) And focus on that one specific thing. And it's the same thing in the clinic, right? Are my glutes weak? I'm picking on the glutes again. Um, so I, I think the skill is translatable. And for the athletes that are like listening to this and, and, and trying to DIY either injury recovery or training or kind of both, that's one of the, that's one of the, that, that is one of the most fundamental skills that you can have is to zoom back out, zoom back in on the acute problem, zoom back out on how it fits into everything else and then try to find solutions, not just pinpoint with laser guided precision, whatever is going on in that one minutia of time. Right. Right. And to that, you know, kind of along those same lines, the, the, uh, you know, specificity is, is really important, you know, like you've, you've talked about and, and being as specific as possible, but being hyper specific isn't necessarily the best. If it doesn't, if it doesn't, go towards towards the broader goal then then being as as hyper pinpoint specific as as possible isn't necessarily any better than just being globally uh globally specific can you give an example of being too hyper specific in the physical therapy world because i can give you one in the coaching world after that i know i'm putting you on the spot with yeah. this one. no that's okay um i'm trying to think there was a um I don't remember the, um, the article, but there was a professional runner in, I want to say like the 2008, 2010 timeframe. And they were talking about their gym workout and they were, they were doing a gym workout. And it was a time when, when ultra runners weren't doing gym workouts. And one of the things they, they said that they, that stuck with me was that they were only doing squats down to like 30 degrees of knee flexion which isn't much at all right? because you shouldn't do, because that's, that's all you're going to use for the running gate. And so they were getting so, so hell bent on, this is the only range of motion you need for running. So this is the only range of motion I'm going to strengthen in. And it just, it always stuck with me as like this kind of ridiculous, why would you, why would you, how does that make sense? And so, that, so yeah, yeah. Hyper specific is not necessarily better than like, if you're going to do squats, do the full range squat. <laughs> don't, don't just do 30, you know, baby squats at 700 pounds. That's like, actually a really good example. I'm glad you come, came up with that off the top of your head, but we see the parallels in, in, in different formats where runners are trying to, in, in trail and ultra runners are trying to accommodate for things that they don't have. So if they're doing a climbing race, they'll go run stairs or they'll do box step ups or something like that, where they're trying to emulate this aspect of specificity, maybe not on the narrow specific side, but, but because they don't have it, the, the one that I always point to in the trail and ultra running world. And this is one of the first kind of pieces of exposure that I had to trail and ultra running was with the Badwater folks where where they oh, were yeah. training for the Badwater 135 and they wanted to simulate the heat that they would experience in Death Valley and it's always classically described as a gigantic hair dryer 
that is blowing into your face constantly through this notorious section between Panamint Valley Valley and Stovepipe Wells, which is typically the hottest uh, part of the course when the course was run uh, uh, during the day. And it very much, having experienced the race many, many times now, it is very much like that. It is like a huge hairdryer. And so these runners would say, okay, I want to, I want to specifically train for this hair dryer effect. And what they would do is they'd wheel their treadmills into their laundry room. They'd shut all the doors. They'd put on a space heater in the back and just heat the laundry room up to whatever temperature they felt was hot enough. And then they would disconnect the dryer vent in the laundry room Stick it in front of the, stick it on the treadmill, like literally with the dirty freaking, you know, silver hose that everybody knows. It's got all the lint in it and everything. They'd stick it on the front of their treadmill and turn the dryer on so that the hot air from the dryer was like blowing in their face, literally like a hair dryer. And I looked at that going, that is a, that is an overly specific way to train for this one element of the race. What you really want is you want your body's capabilities to be robust enough to handle the thermal stress. So let's look at some mechanisms that we can deploy sauna training, training in a hot environment and things like that. That isn't as stupid as taking the dryer vent and specifically putting it on your face to mimic that. So there, I I guess my point with that is, is there examples of all of that? But the, the learning point is the same is that you can get too hyper-specific to the point that it's counterproductive and your example earlier that's a counterproductive, maybe not counterproductive, but it's certainly non-productive squat. Maybe it's counterproductive yeah. in terms of time. We can agree on that. Yeah. But it's not it, productive it's in terms of adaptation, yeah. right? <laughs> right, right. Well, I had not heard the dryer thing. That's wild. Oh, I, say, I could go on and on and on about the bad water crew. Every year, every year they get a little less extreme but when i was first Jeez. exposed to it you know a couple of decades ago it was it was it was just weird and fortunately like me not being indoctrinated to it i think that was a little bit of a strength i could look at it with a kind of a skeptical eye and go this is kind of dumb Whoa. but like i said the the, <laughs> the the psychology is the same right yeah. i want to train for this specific part of the of the event I yeah. want to have a 30 degree squat because that's all I'm using and running. I yeah. want to put the dryer vent in front of my face to Jeez. simulate the hair dryer. <laughs> and it really has kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a novel attempt. It's an admirable attempt, <laughs> but yeah. in terms of it being productive, we have to back out and, 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 and look at how productive it, it, it actually is. And I bet you see that all the time in the clinic where people have just tried to like, Oh, I'm going to fix this because one plus one has to equal two, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, well, and I think we're like, we do a pretty good job of recognizing our patients that are going to do all of their exercises five times, three times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then kind of, you know, just dialing it in for them a little bit. <laughs> but okay. This brings up another point though. Why is more not better in this injury rehab setting? Because a lot of people will look at rehabilitative exercises as a low effort activity. It doesn't cost, it's like if we were to add up the training stress score, right? It's not a lot. They're relatively easy. So if it's easy yeah. and I'm doing three of them, why don't, why don't I do five or six? What's the error in that type of thinking and, and actually doing? So a lot of it has to do with, and I'm going to use a, a word that you use a lot for training. I'm going to use load. But instead of overall training load, we're going to talk about like actual load at the tissue level. And a lot of it has to do with appropriately loading those tissues. And so if we need to rehab, say, and let's just use calf strain, for instance, like if we need to load that appropriately, then we need to do it very specifically so that it's not overloaded because it's already compromised. So I'm, you know, I might ask them to do a certain, you know, depending on the, the severity of it, we might just be doing isometrics where we're just holding the contraction for a certain amount of time and then releasing and then holding the contraction for a certain amount of time and then releasing. And so to do that just over and over and over risks overloading that tissue, which was the problem in the first place. Right. It was too much load for what that tissue could handle and it became injured, whether it was acutely and it was just, you know, a quick tear or whether it was over time uh, with, with, you know, 
too much training, uh, too much training load. Um, regardless of the, the initial problem. Um, even though it feels easy, I guess, I guess that's the point that people try to like look past is like, Oh, this feels easy. It doesn't feel strenuous. But what you're saying is, is the load on the tissue is still enough. It's still enough. It's going to adapt. Exactly. And, and it's always gonna be a fine line between appropriately loading the tissue and also allowing for healing because we, we have to do both concurrently. And sometimes the healing has to take place in a completely unloaded environment. And that's where you get, you know, a lot of post-op, you'll be non-weight bearing for a certain amount of time. In those cases, we can't put any load through it. We have to just prioritize healing. And in certain injuries, yeah, we're going to tell you to not run for a, little, for a, a period of time. And that's to prioritize healing. But that, that quote unquote strenuous activity is now aggressively healing. Like let that tissue heal, let yourself heal, prioritize the other things in your life, prioritize nutrition, hydration, prioritize sleep for God's sakes, prioritize sleep. <laughs> but, this um, is coming from somebody who evaluates people's running biomechanics, by the way, people, somebody is <laughs> telling you to prioritize sleep coming, prioritize coming sleep. from a physical therapy clinic. There's a yeah. lesson in that right there for sure. <laughs> And, and I know I'm a little bit of a hypocrite on that. I've got a seven month old home, but <laughs> that's not being a hypocrite. That's just I'm, I'm accepting period, the situation. I'm, 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 I'm periodizing my, uh, my, my sleep. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so, you know, just prioritizing different modalities, uh, at different phases in the rehab process. Um, there will be a time to push the load. There will be a time for you to, to, uh, to really aggressively strengthen that muscle, uh, but that time might not be right now. Yeah. A lot of runners, when I advise them to go into a physical therapy clinic, it's kind of the same run of show where they're typically having to do that because we've had some air in the training process, right? Too much load too quickly, too much load overall, kind of whatever it is, sometimes acute injury or whatever, but they have been used to pushing themselves hard physically immediately preceding the need to go into somebody like yourself, somebody uh, involved in, in, in your clinic. And then what the clinic is saying is, okay, we're going to give you these super easy exercises that are magically going to fix you. And the delta of effort between what they just went through from a training perspective and what they now have to go through from a rehabilitative or a physical therapy spe- perspective, the delta of that is typically so big that it's easy for the athlete to look at that as not going to make a difference because it's not as strenuous. Right. And what I always say is, it's just like, just let it play out. You're going to have to trust them. Just let it play out. I know we focus on pushing the training and doing things and blah, 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 but you're just going to have to like, let it play out and realize that relatively compared to what you were doing, it might feel easy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I think, I think that's one thing that next level does really well here is we will always try to discuss with the patient. What can we do? Because this piece of the puzzle has been removed, you know, a hard workout, a hard running workout doesn't feel like anything else. I mean, as a runner myself, I I know, like I want to run, but there are times when we just need to remove that piece of the equation and we can work with you on what, what we can do. We're going to push you as hard as we can um, within the confines of, of the limitation. And I mean, there's, there's times where we have people um, uh, that are non-weight bearing and we've got them, you know, sitting on a box doing rope slams and I mean, doing uh, blood flow restriction. And that's one thing that we use a lot of actually. And so I do think there are very creative ways to get a workout and we'll find that way. Uh, it might be weird. <laughs> we'll make it work. <laughs> but you're trying to provide an outlet, right? I mean, it's, it's, Absolutely. it's, it's, it's and, go ahead. Oh, and, and just try to find an outlet for them outside of the clinic, whether that's on a bike or in the pool or, um, you know, <laughs> we had somebody get into a, to aggressive, what they call it. It was like, it's like competitive quilting or something. It was, it sounded ridiculous, <laughs> but then they described it and I was like, geez, that sounds like, it sounds like almost, uh, almost like Carl Meltzer's, uh, speed golf. Yeah, there you thing. go. 
Yeah, take yeah. an activity that you wouldn't anticipate oh, aggressive but okay last topic man i really appreciated that dialogue that was good last topic you just mentioned it blood flow restriction i know that your yes. clinic has been your clinic has been doing this for longer than most clinic or longer than a lot of clinics out there i'm not going to claim right. i know the space that well it's not new and people no. have been tinkering around with this both in a performance setting and also in a rehabilitative setting for almost 20 years now, yeah, it seems a little like, while now. Yeah, yeah. but it seems that it, it's continuing very, it's almost like a slow grind being more and more adopted as a standard run of show in a rehabilitative setting. Yeah. Most of the users are not going to be familiar with, with this, but they're going to be curious about it because it's going to pop up more and more, more of their friends are going to go and kind of experience it. Yeah. So let's just walk, walk the listeners through the whole thing. What is it? Sure. How do you guys use that particular modality? And what do you like? What, just, what do you think about it? And what are the practical applications? Sure. So to start out, uh, BFR, as you'll hear it, uh, spoken about is blood flow restriction. And what it is, is essentially a tourniquet that you put on one of your extremities, one of your arms, one of your legs, and you inflate the cuff to a certain percentage of complete occlusion. Ideally, the research has shown that uh, for the lower extremities, 80% is going to be in that therapeutic level. For the upper extremities, 80% is super painful. Uh, so they go with 50% and that's therapeutic. So you'll see a pretty wide variety of, uh, of tools to do that. Um, some of the most popular and the cheaper ones are, they essentially just look like narrow blood pressure cuffs with a little dial and you just pump it up and then you start working out. And, and so, yeah, you, you pump up this, this, uh, this cuff and then you do, uh, an exercise with it on with air and with air you're like literally air, yeah. pumping it's it up like, like the like the Reebok cinematic. shoes back in the day <laughs> exactly exactly the machines that we use are made by a company Owens Recovery Science and ours look a little different they're this unit that uh, first finds the complete occlusion rate or uh, the rate at which no more blood goes into the extremity and then it backs off and then it keeps you there. So it's constantly adjusting because as soon as you start working out, things start pumping up that, and that 80% or that 50% is skewed. It's, it's no longer in the right range uh, or in that therapeutic range. And that's one of the things that, that is kind of a struggle when somebody comes in and like, yeah, I'm in the gym, I've been using BFR cuffs. And it's like, well, what are you using them for? You know, why are you using them? What kind of cuffs do you have? how are you making sure that it's at this therapeutic level? And, and most people are just like, I just go until I can't. Right. (laughs) Um, And that's not necessarily the, well, actually volitional failure is the, the desired goal for it. um, Strangely enough, but we can get to that. Uh, So, so the machines that we use, uh, like I said, are are made by uh, this company owns recovery science and they have done extensive research on, um, the, the, even things like the width of the cuff. So these are going to be wider cuffs. They're going to be more, um, more comfortable, um, as comfortable as BFR. Have you tried BFR? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, Long time ago, actually like long, long, long time ago before it was ever really that popular anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so they're gonna be a little wider. It's, it's pretty wild stuff. Um, the first time I tried it, I was an intern here and the guy, my, my CI TJ, he put me through it. And I was, I mean, I run hundreds. I was like, oh, you know, this will be. You're just putting this little cuffer on my arm. Really? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What's that that different? (laughs) Oh, you get completely like noodle leg. And it was the closest thing I could like get to to feeling like you do after a hundred miles. But anyway, um, so then we take you through a protocol, an exercise protocol. Um, Typically it's, uh, it's 75 reps, uh, 30 uh, a set of 30 followed by three sets of 15, each with a 30 second break in between. Uh, that's what the research has, has suggested is, um, ideal at this time. Um, they're always doing more research on it. Um, but in the clinic many times, and, and it, it works on a, on a, on several physiological levels, but in, you know, to give a, a really 
just broad overview of why we use it. We use it as a bridge to essentially overcome a catch-22. Many times people are having pain because they don't have the strength to do something, but they can't strengthen because they're having pain. And so you can take the load down from what they need to do to strengthen down to a much lower level so that the actual joint or tissue can handle that load, but your body still thinks it's going through this monster workout. And so, um, so you still get a lot of strength benefits out of doing a much lower load at much higher reps. And so we essentially use it. Yeah. To, to, uh, to get over that catch 22. Um, but it's not the end all be all. It's not a replacement for traditional strength training. Uh, we use it in, um, we use it concurrently. Um, so, you know, many times we'll, we'll have somebody come in, you know, twice a week, we'll do it with them once. And then the other day will be a traditional strength day. And so this way we, we tackle both and, uh, and tip, and we end up having some pretty good results with it. I felt that this, this kind of mode, it's, we're trying to figure out whether it's more applicable in the therapeutic side or more applicable on the performance side, because you'll also see people use it from a performance perspective, mm-hmm. particularly in like strength training, powerlifting and things like that, Right, right. where they're using it adjunctively in addition to their normal lifting routines. They will do blood flow restrictive right. types of sets and reps and things like that to kind of like super boost their, you know, their workouts yeah. or their overall like kind of architecture. Most, most runners aren't going to care about that. There's been right. some speculation that you can use it in the endurance world. And that's another podcast for another day. But yeah. since I'm, since I'm talking to you, I want to mainly focus on the rehabilitation side to, to like really simplify it. You're able to get better kind of improvement out of whatever thing is dysfunctional by using a lower load. So you could take any lift and let's just say I'm lifting something at 20 pounds normally and it hurts. Well, we're going to put on this blood flow restriction device and you're going to lift it at 10 pounds. It's reasonable 50%, right? You're going to lift it at 10 pounds, but the effect that it has on you is like you are lifting 20 pounds. So you've reduced the risk, you've reduced the pain and you're still getting maybe all potentially all, of the yep. benefits of lifting, of lifting that higher weight. And as you, as you mentioned, you're using it as a bridge to eventually get it back to that 20 pound weight. Exactly. Exactly. Because there really isn't a, a true substitute for traditional strength training and there shouldn't be, we're not looking to eliminate it. Uh, we don't, I mean, I don't think anybody would want to put strength in a pill, but, um, <laughs> Hey man, they're trying. Yeah. I guess CPO is a thing, but, um, the, uh, yeah. So we use it as a way to get past that, that initial, that initial point. And how give, give the, give the listeners a little bit of a, uh, of an idea of how frequently you are using that in a rehabilitative setting? Like, is this something where it's like super niche and like really isolated or can it be more broadly applied? No, we use it for a wide, wide variety of patients. Um, we'll, we use it a lot. We deal with a lot of ACLs. Um, and so we deal with it. Um, I mean, we, we've gotten pretty creative with who we use it for. (laughs) And and strangely enough, because it feels like the craziest workout of your life. Um, And strangely enough, some of our most diehard, like I got to get BFR today are some of our older patients and the people that like, that have had a couple joint replacements and they used to just really get after it. And now for whatever reason they can't. And they're like, I got to give you a fart. Today. <laughs> it's funny. Uh, it's the that, outlet. Like, it's the funny. outlet yeah. that you've always been talking about, Absol- right? You're trying to find Absolutely. some outlet. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. So we use it for um, a lot of different things. Um, but some of my favorites are the, are the non weight bearing people um, that, you know, they're kind of down in the dumps. They don't feel like they can do anything. You know, we can't even have them, you know, bike or swim yet. And we put BFR on them and we're doing quad sets and they're just sweating and it's, it's awesome. So, um, yeah, we, we use it quite a bit. Yeah. It's a cool tool. I'm glad to see it finally get more acceptance 
particularly in the in the in the rehab world, which you know I've had to play in a lot, having athletes injured injured over the years because it can't it can't it can be an effective tool if you're using it as a bridge and not using it as like a yeah. sole modality yeah. or sole substitute. That's where you kind of get in trouble because right. you move back to weight bearing stuff, and the gap is too big. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Cool. All right, Patrick, we're gonna let you go, man. That was that was actually really fun. We covered a lot of topics, man. We threw clamshells under the bus and <laughs> barefoot running and everything like that. I didn't know where that one was gonna go, man. I appreciate what you do, man. Um, you want to give a quick plug for uh, next level sports performance and and where they can find you guys? Yep, absolutely. So, uh, like I said, I work with Next Level. Uh, we are in Golden. We just moved to a brand new building uh, three weeks ago. Uh, it's just on the yeah, it's pretty sweet. Um, it's within running distance of uh, North Table Mountain, which nice. is really cool. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you can find us on Instagram. Um, you can look us up on Google. And uh, yeah, come see us. Cool. You guys got a good clinic up there. I'm going to go next time I'm up in Boulder, which will be yeah, some point do. when I'm re-recording the pieces of the audio book. I'm going to come check it out. Yeah, please do. Awesome, man. Thanks for being on the podcast today, Patrick. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Patrick for coming on the podcast today. If any of you are ever in the Golden area or you just happen to live in the Golden or Boulder area, go ahead and check out Next Level Sports Performance. They really do a fantastic job with their athletes there. And I think that came out throughout the course of this podcast where they treat athletes very comprehensively and use this head to toe approach where they look at all aspects, not just their weak glutes. They look at their life, their training, their sleep habits, as we talked about, and all these other components that go into keeping athletes healthy and out on the roads and trails. As one final announcement, we are hiring If you want to join our coaching team, just like Patrick and I talked about during the course of this podcast, we are in the process of bringing on a few excellent coaches. So if you think that you have what it takes, check the link in the show notes to directly apply to be one of our CTS coaches, or you can hit me up on Instagram or on Twitter and I will show you the right direction, or you can go to trainright.com and you can find the information there. There are many avenues to which you can apply. And I always love it when we, when we bring new coaches on because it's always a good process for me and it's a good process for our entire team to bring on some fresh faces. That is it for today. Appreciate the heck out of everybody listening. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.